Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight, brother? Oh, same old, same old. It's very warm, very sticky. Uh, had a very humid pub run this evening. Question I have for you tonight. It is a life or death emergency situation. You have to karaoke to save your life. What song are you going to pick? They might be giants. Birdhouse in your soul. Ah! Eclectic selection. Yes. My... Initial instinct was to go with some Queen, but I can't quite hit those Freddie Mercury high notes. Uh, I mean, I'd love to say somebody to love or don't stop me now, but here's the thing. With karaoke, is it really about how good you are or how much passion? Because if it's passion, then yeah, you go with Queen. If it's register, it's They Might Be Giants. A very, very tactical pick. I, I can appreciate that. I would have to go with uh, some classic country, George Jones, one of my favorite songs of all time. If drinking don't kill me, parentheses, her memory will. Got that one on lock. Ah, excellent. That's a crowd pleaser. You know, you, you get in there with some of that. That's got the, the crowd right there on the old heartstrings. Absolutely. And it's from my favorite genre of country songs, country songs about drinking. <laughs> uh, I like uh, like country songs about drinking. I like country songs about country music. And I think that's it. Those those are the two best types of country music songs. Yeah, I can go with that. Friends in Low Places is a strong number two. The Jersey boy in me wants to go with some Springsteen, but that's it's not my angle. He is the uh, the muse of your people. He is. The boss starts to play and everyone from Jersey just stops. Quiet over there. Yeah. Him and Sinatra. <sighs> Someday we will we will do the musical Bat Chat episode. <laughs> Nothing but karaoke. There's got to be three Batman stories about Batman and musicians. I, I bet I can find that. I bet I can put that together. Uh, we'll do that right after our uh, Joe Potato episode. Don't Dan has threatened that one for a uh, a Patreon pick. So do it, you fucker. Do it. These do as are our all of our Jason Todds. I'll be reaching out to all of you again shortly for new picks. Please don't all subject us to the worst things. Give us some some good stuff, please. Believe me, we already have plans for some of the worst stuff. So so give us some some good picks. Oh, that white white night too looms on the horizon, my friend. Yep. Hey, in all fairness, the Joe Potato the, those are all Alan Grant stories. Those actually are all going to be pretty good. But it you know, war crimes, cacophony. Uh, King's Nightmares. Robin and Batman is still out there. Three Jokers. 
Yikes. Batman Ugh. Earth 2, Volumes 2 and 3. Uh, I'm yeah. going to call in sick for some of those. <laughs> but tonight, tonight, we're finally reading a story that has come up a few times on the show, Officer Down, which is the first crossover after No Man's Land, and then two other stories featuring the GCPD. The last time we had a GCPD episode, we did discuss how to cover copaganda in the year of 2023. That one is very much reflected in one of the stories tonight. The and, most recent story. Yes. And less so in the other two. But we'll, we'll get to that. But we are starting not with that most recent story, but instead with Officer Down. This is a crossover, so get ready for a bunch of credits. Oh boy, strap in. Yeah, because this is eight individual issues of eight different series. This is Batman Volume 1, number 587. Robin Volume 2, number 86. Batgirl Volume 1, number 12. Birds of Prey Volume 1, number 27. Catwoman Volume 2, number 90. Nightwing Volume 2, number 53. Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 754, and Batman Gotham Knights, number 13. The writers are Greg Rucka, Chuck Dixon, Ed Brubaker, Bronwyn Carlton, Devin Grayson, and Nunzio Filippis. Pencils by Rick Burchett, Dale Eaglesham, The Panda Brothers, and Stephen Harris, Mike Lilly, and Mike Collins. Inked by Rodney Ramos, Andrew Hennessy, The Panda Brothers, John Nyberg, Wayne Foucher, Steve Bird, and Jesse Delperdang. Colors by Noel Giddings, Wildstorm FX, Jason Wright, Tom McGraw, Jameson, and Digital Chameleon. Lettered by Willie Schubert and John Costanza. And edited by Bob Shrek, Matt Idelson, Denny O'Neill, Frank Berrios, and Michael Wright. The cover date is March of 2001. Jim Gordon has been shot, and Catwoman is the principal suspect. Both the GCPD and the Bat Family are reeling, and the clock is ticking to find Catwoman and the real killer. Real quick, as a start, as we have talked about it on many other occasions, Problematic Creator Watch, Chuck Dixon, noted right-wing wacko. So Dickhead. So, Officer Down. I'll start just by saying here at the outset, this is a mess. It is a strangely constructed story and is dropping in the middle of various plot lines in various books that are trying to fit into what is going on that makes some things make little sense, especially if you haven't read all the context around it. And in many cases, it feels strangely disconnected from a lot of the, the individual books. The issue in Robin barely has any Robin. The yes. issue in Birds of Prey, yeah, Barbara's in it, but there's no Black Canary. It's not really an issue of Birds of Prey. It tries to feel like one title almost, but the art is so vastly different. Oh my goodness, is it ever. And the Chapters by Rucka, Brubaker, and D. Philippus fit together. The Dixon and 
Carlton and Grayson chapters feel tangential. They, they feel like they're making time to allow the rest of the stuff to go on around it. Oh, and the uh, the Batgirl chapter is not even an official chapter. It is considered a tie-in, which just follows Cassandra going through Gotham. And even the plot here is not a lot. It is so decompressed. It feels like this takes place over a night and like there's not much of a of a real investigation we aren't presented with like suspects i kept waiting for the big twist at the end that never came batman is a surly asshole when he's there and for most of these eight issues he's not there correct me if i'm wrong but this is this has come up because this is a story in which gordon retires as commissioner yeah. And for this to be what sends him off as, as a story, as a project, seems very, very underwhelming. The fact that Batman is such a minor part of this and takes place or takes part in none of the action is really an odd choice. And it's setting up the run-up to Bruce Wayne, murder or fugitive where he has alienated the family. So they are a little worried that he has kind of gone round the bend a little. Can't 100% trust his judgment, and he doesn't have any allies left. So it's, it's the beginning of that. But what frustrates me, and I think we've discussed this before in respect to other stories, there is a perpetual cycle of Batman stories. Batman assembles a large family. Batman alienates that family. Batman has to come back to them and say, hey guys, I kind of fucked up. I need help. The problem with that at this particular point, this is the beginning of that cycle again. That cycle just ended and reached its culmination 18 months before this. No halfway, man's through, land? halfway through No Man's Land. In the, the middle, the, the dead middle is Bruce having Barbara call the whole family together and be like, we need to work together to save Gotham. That is barely a memory at this point. And we're beginning the cycle again here. It's interesting to see the various tropes that sort of generations of writers fall into. I think that was maybe a previous sort of generation's pitfall. The one we have now is definitely, oh, there's a war for Gotham on. Oh, it's a Joker or Catwoman or uh, or Riddler or they're they're trying to take over the whole city. Bane. In all fairness, King subverted that at the end of his run because there it looks like Batman alienates the family when instead he's setting it up, making it look like he did. So they can be prepared to move in at a moment's notice. I don't give the end of the King run a lot of credit, but I give him credit for subverting that trope. The first and the last chapter of this are a decent story. The Rooka yeah. stuff. It's the problem with most of the stuff in the middle. Oh, it's just those other six books. To start with, as we often 
forget to mention art. The Robin chapter by the Pander Brothers. I detest the art oh, of the Pander Brothers. Oh my god. You know, if I, I say this a lot, if it's anything else, right? If it's uh if it's some image like comedy series, it'd be just fine, right? No problem at all. But this is just such a jarring, almost abstract representation of these characters that we have seen so often. I thought it was particularly jarring how you turn from this issue of Robin right over to Birds of Prey, and we can't even like square, does Barbara wear glasses or not, right? I can understand like totally different approaches to art style, and my God, they are vastly different, but we have to get like, does Barbara wear glasses or not from book to book? And yeah, that was that was an issue that definitely stuck out as something that uh, I am very glad for the more modern DC house style. Bullock does not look like Bullock at all in that chapter. No, Bullock, no. Bullock looks like the Bullock from Earth One. He's felt with this big head of hair. It's like, no. I'm not necessarily in love with Rick Burchett's super chunky Bullock, but that's much more on model than the Pander version. And you get to the end of the series and everybody has like this real blocky, almost polished kind of characteristic. This art was all over the place. And speaking of the Pander brothers and speaking of, oh God, we're going to have to cover this one day. They wrote and drew a nine issue Batman miniseries, eight issues, excuse me, Batman miniseries called City of Light is not good. Mm. The only time I have ever liked the Pander Brothers, they did an arc of Grendel, but because it's set in this sort of sci-fi near future, their weird abstract style sort of works. But for here, for a gritty crime story, it does not work. No. Burchett does the first and the last chapters with Rucka, and he does a lot of work with Rucka over, in general, and over Rucka's run in Detective. Eaglesham, who does the Batgirl chapter, again, has a lot of Batman in his history. So does Mike Lilly. And, and Stephen Harris and Mike Collins are both sort of old hands. But these are all fairly realistic art styles. And that one chapter is just so not. It's so jarring. And again, it's not it's not bad art. It's just not what I particularly want in superhero comics. Or at least not in a crime, a, a street-level superhero comic. Do this on Guardians of the Galaxy, Legion of Superheroes, Etrigan the Demon? Maybe, because you've got a more fantastic setting. But on a ground-level Gotham story, does not work nah nearly none of these books feature the creative team that was on that book at the time always what you want in a uh, in a crossover the only book that is i believe written by the writer who is on that book at the time is catwoman and birds of prey the other writers they were playing musical books because Rucka who is on detective is doing Batman 
Dixon, who was on Nightwing, has Devin Grayson there. She'll be taking over that book shortly thereafter. Brubaker, who I don't even know if Brubaker was on a Bat book at that point. He might be about to take over Batman from Larry Hama is on Robin. Wait, 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 wait. Time out. Larry Hama was on Batman? Very briefly. For about a year after No Man's Land. Wild. It is a polarizing run because it's it's big and it's bombastic and it's a little bit too 66 for modern Batman. His Batman's a little on the quippy side. That's the art run that introduces Orca, the Orca woman supervillain. How how have we not mentioned that before? That's that's bizarre. He also writes a couple issues in No Man's Land too, amongst the rotating creators. Makes one of my absolute literary pet peeves in one of those issues. Oh no, what did he do? Batman is sneaking into Mr. Freeze's base using basically a Trojan horse type scheme. And Batman goes, haven't you read the Iliad? Trojan horse is in the Odyssey, not uh, the Iliad. Uh, the Iliad ends with the reclamation of Hector's body. The Odyssey begins 10 years after and they fill in the end of the Trojan War in flashback. It is a very common literary mistake up there with the portrait of Dorian Gray instead of the picture of Dorian Gray. But it is a just one of those little pet peeves that gets the English major and me going. And, and here I am over here thinking I'm smart for getting pissed off about people using uh, entitled wrong. We all have our moments. So, again, I was really struck by there's just not being much plot here. Right. The basic story is Gordon is shot. Everyone immediately fingers Catwoman. Turns out not to be Catwoman. Then we immediately finger a Chicago enforcer who had gone into the witness protection program and then became a Gotham cop. Because sure, why not? And then that's our guy. Oh, but wait. Uh, because of the system, uh, he gets off on some kind of technicality, I think, but even though they have tons of evidence to keep him. And then we are led to believe that Harvey just murders him in the end. That is eventually made more clear, and I wish they had made it more clear at this point. Because when I read this, I assumed the exact same thing. A number of years later, it's made clear that basically Bullock happened to mention to one of his informants that this guy was who this guy was. And so the mobsters that he ratted out came to Gotham and took care of him. So Harvey still basically murdered him. Oh, yeah. He just doesn't pull the trigger. But this is what eventually gets Bullock out of the GCPD for a while. He gives up his shield when IA starts sniffing around. The basic concept that a guy who Gordon took out and arrested years ago comes back for revenge, perfect sense. Absolutely. Classic crime story trope. Love it. Throwing 
the suspicion onto Catwoman. Listen, the Catwoman ongoing at this point was a giant friggin' mess. After No Man's Land, Bronwyn Carlton comes on this book and Gordon winds up arresting Selina. The GCPD gets her. She gets sent to jail. She has a complete psychological collapse. She seeks revenge on Gordon. It is a real mess, very out of character. I noticed the next issue after this, there is someone running around in another Catwoman outfit, resulting in chaos in Gotham and duplicate Catwoman. Eventually, John Francis Moore comes on for like two issues to fix it all by going, hey, it was Scarecrow fucking with her head. Uh And then we get a few months without a Catwoman title. We get the Ed Brubaker, Darwin Cook, Slam Bradley backups into the Brubaker Catwoman series. And this entire run is forgotten. (laughs) Smart move. But while it did fit with what was going on at the time, as you said, it's a little too weirdly pat. And it's not really a mystery. It's not really a procedural. It's neither of those things. Because just as an explanation for those out there who might not know the difference, a mystery story, a detective story, and a procedural are not necessarily the same thing. A detective story, a mystery story, usually is laying out clues And you are following the clues, working with the detective, who is not necessarily a cop. A procedural is exactly what it says. It is following the police procedure. They can be mysteries. Not all procedurals are mysteries, nor are all mysteries procedurals. But there is a Venn diagram where they meet, which will actually be our next story. A little bit. There's not a ton of evidence there. It is still something of a more a procedural than a mystery as is much of Gotham Central, but we'll get there. The middle of this feels like so much padding. All of the, the hunt for Catwoman stuff is, is a lot of padding. The stuff with Barbara is decent character work throughout her processing this, her dealing with this, the same with Montoya, the same with Bullock. The stuff with Bruce is bad. Very bad. Bruce feels very out of character, especially after No Man's Land, where he had made his peace with everyone. It's not out of character for certain interpretations of Batman, but it's such a weird, sudden shift. And the fact that he just sits by Gordon's bedside and doesn't go out hunting the killer... And sends the family to do it. Just feels weird. Yeah, it just, logically, it doesn't track. And then hitting Nightwing and being surly with Alfred and Alfred quitting again. And, like, none of the none of the Batman stuff here is good. None of it. Alfred... Oh, 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 and especially at the end where he gets pissy with Gordon for retiring. Yeah, that is a bad scene. The final scene where he comes back and talks to Jim, which is a mirror of the scene where they reconcile in No Man's Land, is better. But the scene on the roof where he's a dick to newly minted Commissioner Aikens and then is just such a whiny little 
baby to Jim. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you talk to me? Batman should be happy, right? He got out. He should be able to recognize if I am angry, it is because that I cannot get out. I should be happy for anyone who is able to get out. Angry at himself for letting it happen? Sure. Absolutely. Bruce carries the weight of his world on his shoulders. But being angry at Jim for retiring is dumb. Yeah, it is a selfish, pissy, shitty look. I wish there had been more suspects. Or I wish we had gotten rid of the Catwoman stuff earlier. Yeah. And spent more time with the GCPD trying to prove that Jordan Rich was the shooter. Yep. Instead of just all of that crammed into one issue of him in the box with Montoya and Allen, and then him just waiting them out. Because they didn't have enough evidence. Like, you, you couldn't convict the guy on that. Come on. That ending wasn't as contrived as some of the contrivances we'll see tonight, but that was not the best writing. I did like all the stuff with Bullock and Montoya and Allen, though. We start seeing the basic building blocks of Gotham Central here. Yeah, this is this is an interesting story in that it doesn't feel particularly memorable, but its lows, which are basically anytime Batman is on the page, its lows don't sink to the depths that we have seen. There, there's nothing particularly good here, but there's also nothing particularly awful here either. Nowhere does it ever get offensive. And it also reads pretty well. Like visually it doesn't hang together, but as a story from A to B to C to D to E to F, like you can read it and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I can follow this along. It is possibly the last appearance of Mackenzie Bach, who gets promoted to chief in this after Akins is promoted to commissioner, which is a shame because Bach was one of the major GCPD officers through the 90s. He was Sarah Essen's partner. So it's like, oh, good, he got a promotion. Was never heard from again. And died on his way to his home planet. Chief of detectives, you'd think he'd show up. And it is Alan getting his first taste of having to deal with Gotham because Alan came on right after No Man's Land as a transplant from Metropolis when the GCPD was desperate to refill its ranks and apparently really wasn't looking into its officers. Uh, That would be a good point to follow up with uh, now as we have realized that that's a systemic problem across the country. And that we don't have any kind of national database to track shitty cops. We're shitty priests. Yikes. It really shows how easy it is for systems that are meant to protect and enrich our lives fail. The real great society we've built for ourselves here, Matt. <laughs> uh-huh. Also, I feel like this is the real beginning of the arc that we will see play out in Half a Life, the rest of Gotham Central, into 52 with Montoya. This is where we first see 
Montoya start to break bad. Yes, the Two-Face stuff has already happened, but she's not haunted or enraged like she is here when she is just going to go and she's going to shoot this guy. I have a lot of Montoya tonight. We really do. I'm kind of, no offense, I love Montoya, but I'm kind of glad that the Gotham Central arc we picked isn't one of the Montoya-Allen arcs because that could have just made this episode a Renee Montoya episode. We'll have those sooner or later. That There will be Gotham Central question other Montoya story arcs that we will cover at some point. That is not tonight. I think I'm good. Oh, that means it's time to put this cumbersome crossover officer down on the big board. We are 273 stories on the big board. Number one is and remains the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Down at number 50 is Batman Dies at Dawn, the lead-in to Batman R.I.P. Coming in at a sexy 69, it's Sept Comics 566, Batman 400, Resurrection Night. At 100 is Tree of Knowledge, Batman Adventures, Volume 1, Number 26, where Robin and Batgirl take down their professor. Down at 150 is Captive Audience, the Gotham Adventures issue where Alfred is kidnapped. At 200 is A Death in the Family, The Death of Jason Todd. At 250 is Pushback, that awful hush arc from Gotham Knights. And at 273 is the even more awful White Knight. As you said, the lows on this never sink into truly terrible. So I think we're a, we're not in the 200s. No. But I don't think we're we're definitely I don't think we're above 150. I think we're somewhere in between 150 and 200. I'd probably reread Living Hell at 176 before this. Yes. I would probably reread Mad Men Across the Water at 184 before this. I would keep this above 200, above something like Dark Knight, uh, True Batman Story at 197. Yeah, I'd put it above 191, Ablation, that... Alfred and Leslie Tompkins issue from Gotham Knights. This does not have that cumbersome narration. Really hard to put something above Joker's Comedy of Errors at 187, but I could be convinced. No, I'm thinking in between 191 and 187. It's got more substance than Spider-Man Batman at 190. It does. And more substance than the first Mad Hatter story at 189, although that's fun. And that has screwball comedy Vicky Vale. Trying to get that scoop of the century. So are we thinking the new 190? I like the new 190. Our second story of the night is Motive. This is Gotham Central, numbers three through five. The writer is Ed Brubaker, with art by Michael Lark, colors by Noel Giddings, Xylenol, Digital Chameleon, and Lee Lawfridge, letters by Willie Schubert, and edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro. The cover date is March to May of 2003. 
Two different cases are in the focus of the Major Crimes Unit night shift. Detectives Driver and Chandler try to find the killer of a teenage girl. Sergeant Davies and Detective Patton are on the hunt for the D-list rogue, the Firebug. This is where I assume you're talking about contrivance. Uh, no, actually. Okay. Um, I was, was going to be surprised because I thought that the way the two cases dovetail together actually worked pretty well for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look, look, I haven't read a lot of Gotham Central. We've read a couple of arcs here for the show, and I had sort of dipped my toe into it before that. But this is my shit. Like, I mean, this story is not anything more complicated than your standard SVU, but just seeing it in comic book form and having the assorted kind of tangential satellite craziness of, you know, Batman and the costume villains. It's so good. Like I fucking love just this simple ass goofy police procedural in comic book form. If, if this, yeah, if I had been reading comics while this was coming out, I would have just fucking mainlined it. I would have been right there with everybody else handing over every single fucking Eisner I could like, Please, like, give me more. This is my shit. And it, the story is not that complicated. It's not that deep. It's not that big of a surprise. Like, just like in SVU, as soon as you introduce the the creepy, uh, nonchalant, like, you know, tech billionaire or whatever he is. Oh, that's the fucker right there. That's the guy who did it. You know, let's journey along to figure out how he did it. And just, it's just a good solid ass read the random ass yuppie scum is going to be the guy who did it we know that yeah oh oh look it's it's the stephen colbert guest star yeah he fucking did it i wondered because i mean this does have this thing where there's these two disparate cases that wind up being the same case in the end and that is also a very police procedural trope where you've got the two sets of detectives investigating the different crimes that wind up in the long run being the same crime. I admit getting a kick out of them using Firebug. The second tier Batman insect-themed arson villain. Like This guy isn't even Firefly. He's not good enough to be Firefly. He's Firebug. He's pretty much Firefly, except he's not. And I believe the reason he got all those scars is that he and Firefly actually had a throwdown and Firefly kicked his ass and lit him on fire. <laughs> uh there's a certain like uh peacemaker vibe to it where like oh we don't have the permission to use the good people <laughs> yes so it's time for judo master in vigilante <laughs> you'd seen a little bit of these characters in soft targets but this was where you really got your first real taste of the night shift without Montoya and Allen and Maggie Sawyer sucking up all the air. It's nice how fleshed out they are, but they're again fleshed out in that law and order way where they could have, many of them could have very complicated lives off panel and it's not what we're focused on. We're focused on them on the job. I mean, Montoya and Allen, with them, it's, it's their whole lives. But with these characters... We don't spend a lot of time with them outside of the GCPD. Okay, Patton obviously has a thing for his partner. 
She obviously has a thing for Driver. Driver has a thing for her. There's office romance, but it's not like we're spending a lot of time with Sarge and the boat that he's building because he's two years from retirement or whatever. Uh, he is too old for this shit. But that those little personal moments, they're not visited for any extended stretch of time. They just pop up, right? It's like, oh, you know, we're we're on the way to the scene. Oh, you you got eyes for them? Oh, that's weird. Okay, let's get out and let's, you know, let's take some pictures or something. Like, it's all very brief and feels incidental to what's going on in terms of the job. And while there isn't a ton of clues and such to this story, this is a properly done procedural where we see them investigating the clues. We see them following the logical trail. Like, okay, so we've got a dead girl. Let's ask her parents. Oh, she has a journal. Let's read the journal. Oh, she was bullied. Let's track down the bullies. Let's find out what they were bullying her about. Okay, that's not it. Back to square one. Let's find out. Oh, she said something about one of her babysitting clients. Let's find out what that was about. Because her be- she told her best friend, let's find her. There's a lot of, we're following all of these steps. And you know, it's interesting how the modern procedural has gotten so far away from like actual police work and the actual quote unquote science of police uh, investigation forensic quote science is a big 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 kettle of fish that we're not really able to get into here tonight but you and I both have a big big soft spot for dragnet dragnet pointed out how sometimes this stuff takes months right like, you know, Joe would, would go into, you know, he'd say like, oh, okay, so uh, this is January, da, 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 da. like we, you know, we investigated this. Six months later, you know, we came back to the case and you know, had this development. Uh, with this, you know, we have we have the dead body and then we go right to the medical examiner and it was like, oh, I can, I can give you the time of death right now. It's a little unrealistic, but it does keep that story moving, moving along. That at least feels like, okay, they're using insect larvae, which are observable there. It's not like it's a Jane Doe and they suddenly got DNA results an hour and a half later. Yeah. I can deal with the insect larvae and the just basically probing the wound to find metal filings in there. This isn't CSI or Bones where there's miraculous technology that answers everyone's questions immediately so this has nothing to do with what we read but we're talking about uh you know forensic uh reports and whatnot i had the profound misfortune uh i was on reddit today and the, that's your the first reddit, mistake right there exactly the reddit app is bad and i can understand why people don't like using the reddit app that's basically what the big reddit controversy is right now like oh my god we have to use third-party apps because the reddit app shows me subreddits that i have i want nothing to do with i I don't i don't want anything but the subreddits i have joined like that's why i'm on reddit right now anyway i stumbled on to kobe bryant's autopsy report today oh 
Yeah. It's it was very icky. Like there's no there's no pictures, but detailed uh diagrams, very vivid explanations of what happened. The only thing I will say is that it, he passed very quickly. And that's probably a good thing. Ooh. <laughs> uh if if this was a podcast on uh, on YouTube, you you could only uh, imagine the face that uh, Matt is making right now. Trying to get my my thoughts back in order <laughs> for where they were going. the The firebug plot is much smaller here. It's used for some almost comic relief for when they find firebug, the original firebug himself, and to give an excuse to get. Driver working with Chandler to build the interpersonal drama. Yeah, and it's also good for just sort of explaining more of what happens in and around Batman in the regular lives of people. So, you know, Batman is busy fighting villains and, you know, putting the Penguin and the Joker and all that stuff away. Oh, but then people are also obsessed with these villains and you can buy their stuff on what is it gbay which becomes a huge plot point towards the end of this series interesting about the black market in batman and batman villain related memorabilia i i will say no more although there are hints of it in our third story for tonight too one somewhat throwaway line if you hadn't read all of Gotham Central that has a certain degree of resonance if you had. Interesting. Okay. This is another book we really should now start trying to get moving in order. I would agree. As we maybe move some of the other stuff into other places, this might slot into that episodes that are things in order. It was a strange choice when we find out that Bonnie, our dead girl, would snoop through her babysitting clients' houses. And one of them, it turned out, what Bonnie had found about her was that she was in the closet. And Montoya's at the table during this conversation and doesn't seem to react to it at all, right before Half a Life, which feels like setup in retrospect. I really like the use of Batman in this story. That driver who lost his partner to Mr. Freeze in the first issue, in the end, flashes the bat signal just to tell Batman that they caught one of the freaks and didn't need him. And Batman's response is, hey, great job. Don't touch the light again. Yep, exactly. Which is spot on. I like that we see a cop reacting to Batman negatively, but not out of some grit my teeth, damn vigilantes, or out of being a crook. No, this guy's a legitimate grudge, a legitimate gripe about what Batman causes and states it right out of the gate here. And it sets up what we see the end of soft targets with 
him not saving Patton and saving the reporter instead, that we, we see a building problem between Batman and the GCPD that's probably already been there that Gordon has smoothed over somewhat over the years. That's one thing we didn't quite touch on in the last story, what Gordon has to say about Batman and talking about him as, was it, what is it, my best friend, one of the greatest men I've ever known, like the, the really touching stuff that Gordon might say about Batman, but Batman is a little, maybe a little too stoic to say about Gordon. Very soon we will cover the one issue, the one, the one off that is Gordon's retirement dinner. It is a delightful issue of Detective Comics. It's Rucka and it's mostly Bruce. It's, it's Bruce at the retirement dinner. It's narrated by Sasha Bordeaux. And it's one of those issues that very much cements that, yes, Gordon knows, but Gordon isn't going to say anything. I don't think I have much else to say other than this is, again, Michael Lark art and is thus perfect for this book and just stunning. Oh, yeah. You 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 read this and you see why this got Eisner's. I still can't get over giving that Riddler book an Eisner nomination. But, yeah, this is not, say, something like the Forrest Gump of comics, right? Something that we can look back on and think, oh... Yeah, what are we doing giving Oscars to that? That's a mess. American no, this Beauty. Is... Another uh, one. Yikes. This is just really, really well done comics. Uh, really well done, solid stories in this much wider universe. Still finding this particularly interesting take on it. I always look forward to returning to Gotham Central. And the procedural allows you to do recaps really conveniently. I noticed that through here. It was like, okay, we need to go back and we need to look at the evidence again. The beginning of the third issue where Driver and Chandler go back to the scene of the crime and recap everything they've seen before is actually an organic way to do a recap that doesn't feel like, okay, and here we go again with the synopsis of the past two issues like you often get back when trades weren't a thing. But yeah, that's what I got. Oh, uh, that means it's time for Gotham Central 3 through 5 motive on the big board. This is one of these cases of, I don't think this goes as high as either of the other two stories we have from Gotham Central. That is no condemnation of this because Soft Targets is 12 and Half a Life is 22. Just because you're not that high does not mean we're putting this low. No. Soft Targets remains one of the best Joker stories ever told. Half a Life is a defining story for Renee Montoya. I would say this goes in the top 50. Yeah. Probably somewhere in the low 30s, upper 40s. I don't think it beats Father's Day, the Alfred story that we did from Tom Taylor. No. Here's one that we often come back to. Does it beat Golem of Gotham? 
I knew you were going there. Uh, that uh, that story tears me up inside. This is just a good, solid. Like I, I keep saying, it's it's SVU in comic book form. It's it scratches such a particular itch, but it doesn't have that same emotional resonance as as you said the earlier arcs. Let me give you a spot then. Okay. New forty four. Below, there is no hope in Crime Alley, the first Leslie Tompkins. Above, Gothic, a romance, the Grant Morrison, Klaus Jansen, Legends of the Dark Knight arc. A good, weird horror arc. But again, there's nothing emotionally resonant there. It's just a cool, trippy sort of story. I like it. New 44. Final story of the night is GCPD, The Blue Wall. This is GCPD, The Blue Wall, numbers one to six. The writer is John Ridley, with art by Stefano Raffaelli, colors by Brad Anderson, letters by Ariana Maher and Josh Reed, edited by Ben Abernathy and Ariana Torturo. The lives of three rookie officers in the GCPD come face-to-face with the perils of policing in the 21st century, both within the department and outside it. One will quit, one will lose hope, one will break. Meanwhile, Commissioner Renee Montoya struggles with her own demons. We haven't done a lot of stories for the podcast that we have already covered in the column, but this is another of those stories. How did this read to you in one sitting versus over six months? In one sitting, I noticed the contrivances more. (laughs) The story flowed together a bit better but then i was also able to recognize oh it's awfully convenient how these three rookie officers have such a crucial part to play in this and also how they have no lives outside of the gcpd and how we have one who does a really really despicable thing at the end to save her friend or to at least think about saving her friend who has just started murdering people. It is that question of how far you can push literary necessity. The fact that they're all friends is the thing that feels contrived. If they were all three rookies that didn't know each other, that would have felt less convenient. Yeah. It has a big, like, Star Trek Picard vibe to it. And now we've got all of the most important people in the universe on the same uh, ship now, the Enterprise G7 and Rafi and uh, Jack Crusher and... Jordy's daughter. Yeah. Just a universe full of conveniences. I think setting aside that, for those of you out there who... uh, We're going to... I think we need to talk about this as if people don't read the column because just depending on saying, well, like we said before, isn't going to help anybody. No. So we have these three rookies and we have Montoya. We'll save Montoya for last because especially having reread some other stuff lately, I have some things to say about the Montoya stuff, but we have these three rookies and each of them basically have to face the facts that 
there's no easy answers and the system is broken. And that's an important message to establish. And it is my second favorite thing John Ridley has written, second to the other history of the DC universe. While I will, I can see your contrivances, this is tight. This does not linger on some of Ridley's clunkier dialogue tropes. I have some questions about the sudden shift in one of these characters towards the end of the book. But I think all things taken, this is not a bad story. There are some puzzling choices made along the way. I find it difficult to overlook the contrivances, especially just sort of the convoluted nature of Sam's fall from grace. Because we got we got one cop who she's lauded as a hero because uh, she didn't fire uh, her service weapon on uh, a suspect who appeared that he may have been drawing a gun. Uh, so she's lauded as a hero for that. But the next time when she freezes in a a very similar situation, somebody gets shot because of it. And then it turns out that, oh, wait, uh, I wasn't using my discernment as an officer to not shoot the first suspect. Uh, I just got scared and didn't pull my gun. Like, it's just a very clunky means of of going about first raising uh, this woman up just to you know lower her her down the officer who becomes a uh, a parole officer it is a much more believable rise and fall of oh one of my parolees got back into crime i felt responsible for it there was a really also kind of convoluted story there uh, where he lost his life, and I feel personally responsible, so I'm going to you know, quit the force. But that was his second parolee. His first parolee is the one who Sam Park doesn't draw her gun on and who shoots a civilian. Again, it, amazing how this is all connected. It is. It does have this, boy, Gotham must be the smallest big city in the world that all these people are circling each other. I wish that the third officer, Ortega, that his emotional and mental problems had been made clear earlier on. Because, listen, the racist cops treat him like shit. They are terrible. It is terrible what is done to him. But even as Montoya says when confronting him, A lot of people face this. They don't go and get a gun and shoot people. I wish we had seen that he had instability before that. There might have been a little bit of that when he shoots a suspect and he feels nothing. But that's a fight or flight scenario. So that could be argued as adrenaline. And we've got that... That strange little bit where his friends say, yeah, he was always kind of a little weird. What what did you mean by that? What what are you talking about there? Either explain what that means or don't put it in there. A lot of this is here 
for Ridley to get the message he's trying to make across. And it's an important message to tell. But we said this a bunch when we were reviewing it before. This needed more time to percolate. It would have felt less contrived if we had had more time for them to spread out, to develop different lives, different cases, and then they could eventually cross-pollinate. But when it's six issues and it's like boom, 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 it does seem like, okay, I'm just trying to tell the story. I'm trying to get it out. Yeah, this would have been stronger for me if it was something like 10 And if we had had something else beyond this basically interpersonal drama, if they had been solving other cases that they didn't have these deep personal, emotional, professional connections to, like, you know, Ortega, his first assignment is this, uh, it's not the tenderloin, but... um, Tri-corner. Tri-corner, yeah. I knew there was a T in there. It is what they say is like the toughest beat in Gotham. Let's see him like solve some crimes. And we get like a little taste of crime, but it's very much in the background of the drama and the point that Ridley wants to make. Uh, And I will say this for, for Ortega's, for lack of a better word, suffering. It is built as well as anything else is through this book. And it escalates and we could certainly see why a man would break, but maybe the book doesn't make a clear enough argument as to his response to breaking. Um, so Ortega, the last straw for him, he feels like he's finally making progress with his fellow officers. Like they invite him to uh, a dinner, like a celebration of, of a big case that he, he helped bring in. And he's like, oh, yeah, bring your dad. And uh, it turns out it's just this racist setup at this like this abandoned uh, restaurant. And he's got his dad there and his dad's like, yeah, I told you. I told you this whole time. I can't believe you were so gullible, naive. It is a crushing personal moment for that. Uh, and then after that, he just assassinates uh, Montoya's brother and fiance. Like it is a disproportionate uh response in levels of cruelty and violence and just awfulness and ridley does this thing where he leaves a manifesto and there is this thing about trying to inflict suffering on those who are responsible for the machine which is what he addresses the the system as and eventually he does hunt down the officers who were harassing him but it feels like that's kind of inverted if he'd killed them first and then montoya had held the press conference condemning him then he killed her brother it would have felt like a more logical progression but instead he jumps right to let me kill the commissioner's brother and his fiance who i have never met montoya is callous toward him and Ridley sets that up very well in that these asshole racists thumbtack a sketch of a stereotypical Mexican bandito with his head scotch taped onto it and 
HR is no help because they're like, yeah, you're basically going to be making an enemy of everyone if you start an investigation on this. And when he goes to Montoya, who's already dealing with all this other shit, and we'll get to that soon, he mentions, you know, it was on the uh, the bulletin board. And that immediately to her conjures the image of the picture of her and Daria thumbtacked to the bulletin board in Half a Life. And that is her reaction. Oh, you want to talk about something thumbtacked to a bulletin board? You want to talk about something that ruins your life? And so it's... Get out of here. Yeah, It is smartly constructed to use that as the thing he goes to her about. Because it, A, finds her at a low point, but also evokes the worst moment of her life. As to Montoya. Oh, boy. You've not read the end of Gotham Central. You've not read 52 either, have you? I have not. My thing with this is the first half of this book, Montoya is hardcore obsessed with Two-Face. She is obsessed with him being free now, which I guess ties in with Detective, but not really with Task Force Z, because there he would have gotten a free pass, because anyone who takes part in any of Amanda Waller's kooky schemes theoretically shouldn't be on parole. They're just free. I think Task Force Z is in its own universe. Yeah, it's one of these things that, yeah, it kind of happened, but nobody talks about it, really. But it does somewhat tie in with the stuff Rom V has done with Harvey and Detective. So I, I kind of take that as the thread. There is one specific editor's note that I think relates to, oh, yeah, this happens before Harvey is basically t- taken by the Orgums. Montoya's entire arc through Gotham Central is her hitting rock bottom. And then... 52 and the stuff with her is the question after that is her pulling herself back up and finding her own center, her own path again. This seems to disregard a lot of that character growth and has her still severely hung up on things that she reckoned with. So... Again, I think this is better as as 10 issues. And I don't know whether we need more Montoya or less Montoya because this Two-Face stuff is such a focus. And then by the end, it's forgotten. Like it's just totally put to the side. And then as we have talked about, her uh, alcoholism is just, just kind of a mess here. I can understand some of it. And personally, I I am not sober. I am not a sober individual. I do I do drink. Um, I know there there are people in my life who have mattered to me and who still matter to me uh, who are sober. And I think that that issue needs a bit more sensitivity, uh, especially when Montoya has made a purposeful decision to one drink and then is immediately shown drinking at work. Like, it was just not believable to me. And also, this story would have been just fine without bringing any of that up. It's believable to me when an al- sometimes when an alcoholic 
slips, they slip hard. But it is not addressed in a tactful manner. It is there to allow Ortega's father to get in a punchline. Yeah, that's not all a, it is. Not a punchline is in the punchline to a joke, but as a, you know, body blow to Montoya when he's like, I smell liquor on your breath. And then she's suddenly sober again. And there's a line about calling your, you know, I want to call my sponsor. That's never followed up on. And while the last time we saw Montoya before she popped up as commissioner, she and Kate Kane made peace with each other and were kind of dancing around maybe rekindling a romance at the end of the Batwoman series. I'm fine that they didn't, but it's not like she had no one else in her life. Why didn't she get in touch with Bullock? Why didn't she get in touch with Gordon? Kate was there, as I was that was what I was saying there as well. Even though she and Daria aren't seeing each other, and even though Benny dies, there are people in her life. I don't see why she's acting like she's completely alone. Even if she wasn't comfortable getting in touch with Gordon, Bullock was her partner and they made peace. It feels like Ridley really wanted to tell a self-contained story that didn't bring in a ton of other characters and thus ignored certain characters that would logically have been involved. If Ortega is going around and has killed six people with an AR-15, it doesn't matter that the bat signal isn't up. Batman is going to be hunting this guy. Oh, yeah. It feels like there's this intentional avoidance of Batman. I don't know if it's the points of view that he was choosing to write from in other history of the DC universe and I am Batman that put this idea forward or if it is a personal one. But if we're reading the author's voice coming out of the characters in those stories, I don't think Ridley particularly likes Batman as a character or Bruce Wayne. No, no, that would, that would seem to track. Yeah. And so I feel like he intentionally is avoiding writing that incarnation of Batman. There's also a couple of moments that don't quite line up with canon in here. I almost wish that this had been Black Label, so it could have avoided having to deal with some of the continuity stuff it was trying to deal with and just tell its story. Especially when this feels like a spiritual sequel to Gotham Central, and in some ways a repudiation of the propaganda of Gotham Central, but isn't quite matching what happened in Gotham Central. And I just, I don't think it rises the level of Gotham Central either. I completely understand and respect the idea of needing to be more critical of the police. Like, Dragnet, just to go back to that, Dragnet could not be made now. For one, it's too boring for 2023. And two, it's too uh, uncritical. And three, like we can't have Joe Friday complaining about marijuana and LSD for 30 minutes a week. 
but it just doesn't feel like it hits that same level of I'm reading an important book, right? I am reading a book that has a point and that has a point that needs to be made, but it's not a, this is integral to understanding the DC universe. And I think if it had more of a run, if it had tried to speak to the universe in a larger way and just instead of speaking to, you know, the police of Gotham, it could have gotten there. Every other officer other than those four is a straw man or a talking head. Especially the chief. My goodness. Yeah. He's there to deliver exposition. That's it. He's there for so Montoya has someone to talk to. Bingo. And the the one detective who we see, the blonde-haired detective, I had to keep going back and trying to remember what his name was from the first time he showed up because he has no personality other than blonde-haired detective. And I can see Ridley's point in not wanting to flesh out the racist cops, that they're just racist cops. But they don't have names. They are all fairly interchangeable, except for the one guy. This is three white guys and a black guy. And personality-wise, they're all completely interchangeable. We don't have any... Not that you need a reason to be a racist. Lord knows we've seen that. But I would have liked some more fleshing out of just the world of Central, of, of the world of Tricorner here. What exactly does Montoya do on a day-to-day basis? What kind of other decisions is she making about, aside from, oh, continue that, that sting operation on Harvey, and uh, the surveillance on Harvey, excuse me. Yeah. And I would have liked more of her realizing that being the commissioner is really you're more a political animal than a cop anymore. That not everyone can be Jim Gordon. That Gordon maintained his presence in the the field as an oddity. And that most commissioners just are behind a desk. And that would have been a good scene for her talking to Gordon about what it was like to be commissioner. But again, I have a feeling like Ridley had little interest in writing Gordon. And that's absolutely fair. Yeah. It really is. Because it's hard if you're trying to be critical of the police establishment to write an old white guy who is the hero cop. And that is what he has been for 80 years to paint him in a damning light, which is what you can do in other history of the DC universe, this black label outside of canon and continuity project but trying to write jim gordon as fallible and as someone who is absolutely a cog in the machine is something that editorial might not let fly i want to go back and reread the montoya issue of other history of the dc universe now the best line in this whole book is at the beginning of issue five when Davis and Montoya are talking after Davis has identified Ortega to the press and Montoya is feeling 
the weight of all of this and how she's saying to Davis that you know we coming up because I guess we haven't made it clear uh chief of patrol Davis is a black man she said that you know we came up and we said we would change the old white boys club and he says I suppose the club makes old white boys out of us all and her reply is worse than that we let it happen to us and god i wish that had been teased out more yes so much could have been done with montoya feeling like she's part of the establishment and honestly the thing that i almost wish she'd been struggling with more than the drinking instead of opening that drawer and seeing the the Jack Daniels. I wish she'd opened the drawer and seen her mask as the question. Ooh, that would have been good. She was her struggle is not wanting to take the law into her own hands. She's so about not calling in Batman that the force has been too dependent on Batman. Other than one oblique reference early on about her, you know, thinking that she used to be good at asking questions. I would have loved to see her struggling with whether or not she can wear a mask and be commissioner at the same time. And there is no reference to any of that. No, this is a series that, you know, if we, if we did a numerical score, I would say it's, it's a solid seven. Could have easily been a 10. If this had three more issues to, flesh out some of the lives of these other characters to flesh out Montoya's struggles within the department versus just her personal struggles and to give chief Davis a personality and detective Stevens, a personality other than blonde haired detective who seems to be Montoya's go-to. Couldn't you have used driver? Couldn't you have used any of the Gotham Central cast just as a you know an established character? Because then you don't need to build the backstory and they feel like less of a straw man because you know who they are. You don't have to do that much then. Here it's just like, and here's this convenient detective again who has no personality other than convenient detective A. Ah, they cut. Uh, they got his name up on the wall. Convenient Detective A. End of watch. Also, I would have liked to see more of the stuff with. We get hints of Montoya's personal life with her brother and his fiance before they're killed, and her meeting someone else. And and that just feels that that bit feels very shoehorned in. One early scene to set up the final scene, and I would have liked a little more of that earlier on. So the end where she calls Aaliyah, this one, to sit down and talk, to have it feel more earned. Yeah, there's in terms of her personal life, we need either less or more. What we got does not work as well as it should. I want more, but I we need more issues for there to be more. Yeah. Because there's not enough time for any of this. 
if this had focused on two rookies instead of three, it might have worked better because it would have given each story more time to work. But because they're all so heavily intertwined, there's not a way for any of them to be removed without the whole story collapsing in on itself. I think we probably could have gotten rid of, uh, what is it, Eric? Wells, the parole officer? Yeah. Eric Wells, yeah. Uh, because his arc is basically like, oh, I, I wanted to, to be compassionate. Uh, I had a boss that said, no, you had to be a hard ass. And then I tried being a hard ass and it didn't work. And I was bummed. And so I quit. He stopped serving any story purpose after issue three, except to, in the end, when Ortega comes to him and tries to get him to join his cause, he says no, and he calls 911 and tells them the car Ortega's driving. And that could have just as easily been Park. Except that she has stolen evidence to protect him. Right. Which... There's your question. When you're using these characters to criticize the broken system, and then one of them absolutely commits a crime, where does that that fall? Because, I mean, Ridley does a good job of, while you understand why Ortega does what he does, you're not supposed to empathize with him as he's going around and killing people. And that's that's part of the reason why Montoya's family goes first, because those are innocents. And you know these are points we've, again, already hit in the column. But as we said, you're going to get them again. You can see like his thinking behind this, right? If, if I have him kill the racist cops first, that makes him out to be some kind of anti-hero. But if I kill these people who had nothing to do with it, if I kill them off first, then it's very clear that he is the villain of the story. But logically, it doesn't flow. And I forget the point I was making at the beginning. But yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The art is very nice. Yes. Stefano Raffaele does a great job with this book. He's done some of the art. Uh, within the Rom V detective as well. Great artist, well within that gritty, realistic style that works really well with these police stories. One thing I do want to say about the art is that I don't particularly care for Montoya's consistent characterization of like, her hair was always kind of wild. Her facial expressions were always kind of wild. She looked like someone physically out of control. And I think that that was taking it a bit too far. Uh, I wish that that had been a bit more restrained. But everything else was, was very solid. Again, I just I feel like this was making a point that needed to be made, told a decent story that needed more space i believe that means it's time but jcpd blue wall on the big board all right i've been Ooh. eyeing this I've okay been eyeing this i think we are somewhere but 
between and this is this is a tight range but i can i can justify it we are somewhere between 140 and 150 okay 140 being in justice year 2 uh 150 being an arbitrary number it is a solid book we are definitely above i am batman uh at 167 you know our other ridley series because that art is so terribly inconsistent uh and when it's not inconsistent it's just bad but for all of the details that are kind of messy this is a this is a good readable book and injustice is more fun although this doesn't have to be fun to be up here on our board see i would have gone a little higher not okay. a ton. I would have probably placed it in the 130s because the way I look at it is this. This is a book that is trying to bring a very specific genre into Gotham. A, a genre of realistic, modern police storytelling, which is a, not a genre we often see in superhero comics. One thirty. Welcome to Gotham Academy is also trying to bring in another genre, the teen romance manga into Gotham, and I think is more successful in doing it. I don't think this beats Gotham Academy, but I think what this is trying to say makes it a little better than things like Gates of Gotham or Fearless, that first Ed Brubaker Batman story that introduced Zeiss. Because yes, Injustice is more fun, but this is trying to do something. And that gives it monkey astronaut points, which Injustice, Injustice is many things, but aside from a couple of moments that are big shockers, they're not really monkey astronaut shockers. They're just no. like, hey, let me do something totally out of left field. Yeah. I don't think this qualifies as full-on monkey astronaut because it has Gotham Central to fall back on. But doing this type of critical reckoning with modern policing is not something we see handled with this level of thought, if not delicacy. How about right above Gates of Gotham then? In between Gates of Gotham and the first Jason Todd story? Yes. I am good with that. New 137. Yes, indeed. And that is not a bad showing. That is above the, the median. After that, that does it for tonight. Next week, we're finally reading the last story from the original Batman number one, finishing out that classic, a story that is the first appearance of Catwoman, as well as two other stories featuring the feline fatale. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, Jim Kimman, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby T-Bucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sergioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. 
You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlast 1013 And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>